All right, let's pray and then we'll dive into Mark 5 this morning. Father, thank you so much for the fact that, Lord, each morning when we wake, your mercies are new to us. Lord, your grace greets us as we open our eyes. And Father, we're so thankful for that. And Lord, today as we open your word, Father, we want you to teach us. We want you to encourage us. And and Lord, there are areas of our lives where, Lord, we need your light to shine into those areas. And, And Lord, help us to grow. And so we ask you to do your work today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the world we live in today has become a rather crowded place. And yet at the same time, it seems it has become a very lonely place. While people are more connected through social media than at any time in history, at the same time, record numbers of people are admitting to to feeling more and more isolated and lonely in their life. According to a study that was done just before covid Researchers found that a whopping 79% of kids between the ages of 18 and 22 said they felt very lonely. And for millennials, the age group just above, that number only goes to 71%. And for those old geezers like me, it it hovers around 50%. And remember, this was before COVID. It seems that While people are preoccupied with what everyone else is doing on our little video screens, that we have fewer and fewer friendships. We communicate more than ever in the history of man electronically, but we have fewer and fewer human connections on a daily basis. Listen, God created us to be social creatures. That doesn't necessarily mean social media creatures, but social creatures. God's very first comment when he created man was, it is not good that man should be alone. And it wasn't that God was suddenly surprised after he created man and said, oh, he's alone, this isn't good. No, the reason God comments on that and that it's written in the word is so that we would know that about ourselves. God already knew it. And yet, since the Garden of Eden, Satan's goal has been to isolate people. Our enemy works hard to destroy families and to destroy friendships. And why? In order to get us isolated. His goal is to isolate you so that he can weaken you and ultimately destroy you. And this morning, we are going to encounter a man that the Bible says that Satan has gained control over him. The Bible describes him as demon-possessed. Now, we're not told how Or why he became demon-possessed. Only that he is. And today I want us to look closely at this man's condition. We're going to take this extreme example in order to see how when Satan takes control of a person. Or if he takes control of a person. That that, these are the things that he wants to accomplish in their life. Now, I want you to know this morning, without a doubt, that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you cannot be demon-possessed. That's one thing that is clear from the Scriptures. But can Satan mess with you? Can he deceive you? Certainly. Can he tempt you to walk down a path that's going to be harmful to you? Absolutely. And this is why the Bible tells us over and over again to resist temptation. 
This is why the Bible warns us to walk carefully in this sin-infested world. This is why we're encouraged over and over to draw near to God. To walk in the Spirit. To study and to know God's Word. These all serve to protect us from the deception of our adversary. So let's look closer this morning at this man's condition. Let's see what are the behaviors and the attitudes that he has adopted as a result of the demonic influences in his life. To what kind of lifestyle has Satan driven this man to? Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came, they being the disciples and Jesus, to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now when we arrive at Mark chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples had just had a horroring experience the night before on the Sea of Galilee. A sudden storm had, had hit, and the small boat that they were traveling in, it gets tossed around like a beach ball in strong winds. The boat is taking on water. And even the experienced fishermen like Peter, James, and John, man, they are frightened out of their mind. Now, in odd contrast to that, Jesus is on the back of the boat on a pillow taking a nap. They wake Jesus up, and they accuse him of not caring that their boat is about to sink. And so as a result of their lack of faith, Jesus works a miracle. With just a few words, he calms the sea, and he calms their panicked hearts. But this miracle, it's interesting, it brought about a second round of fear to these disciples. In chapter 41, uh, excuse me, in verse 41 of chapter 4, we read, They feared exceedingly, and they said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, they're about to find out that Jesus can calm more than a sea. That Jesus can calm an angry heart and an angry mind of a person whose life is being destroyed by the enemy. Look at verse 2. And when he came out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, now the disciples, they're still trying to recover from the long night they'd had on the stormy sea. and The things that they had just endured. And now suddenly they are confronted with a crazy man who the Bible says is possessed by an unclean spirit. Now we're going to find out later, he's actually being controlled by several evil spirits, many evil spirits. Now I don't want us to get lost this morning in the how and why of this man's condition. You know, this Bible study today is not going to be about demon possession, okay? So let's don't get sidetracked there. I want us to focus on what these evil spirits had done to this man once they gained control of his life. Because here I see four behaviors that are caused by the influence of Satan and his demons in this guy's life. I think it's important that we identify them. Because this is what Satan wants to do in all of our lives if he's given the opportunity. And so let's see four observations about the work of Satan in this man's life. Number one, Satan pushes this man towards isolation. Number two, we're going to find that Satan pushes this man to rebel against all the authorities in his life. Third, Satan pushes this man into self-destructive actions. And lastly, Satan pushes this man away from Jesus, his Savior. 
Now let's take a few moments and drill down to each of these dangerous and destructive behaviors. Because we need to understand that we can be pushed in these same ways of thinking, in these same ways of acting. But only if we allow ourselves to go there. And I want you to know today, right from the outset, you have a choice. Satan cannot make you do any of these things, but he can certainly lead you down a path that will take you there. Now, first, Satan pushes this man towards isolation. Look at verses 2 and 3. And when he had come out of the boat, he immediately met him there, a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit, who had been dwelling among the tombs. Notice first where this guy is living. He's dwelling, it says, among the tombs, among the graves. He's living in a graveyard all by himself. He's been driven away from his family and from his friends. Actually, Matthew's account tells us in in his recounting of this story that there were actually two demon-possessed men living in this graveyard. It appears from Mark and Luke's recounting of the story that one of the two men is more vocal and more out in front and and really becomes the the focal point of the story and the interaction with Jesus. So when they tell the story, they just leave out the other guy. But these men had retreated to the loneliest and most isolated place in the community, the graveyard. Think about it. The place of the dead. Graveyards are places of superstition. They're places of fear. There's a reason why scary scenes from horror movies so often take place in graveyards. Because they're a little freaky to us, aren't they? It's an interesting fact that when Jesus saves a person, in contrast to that, he relocates them where? Into a church. He places them immediately into a community of believers. Jesus puts us among the spiritually alive. He unites us with other people who can support us and protect us. Those who can encourage us and those who can guide us. In contrast, though, Satan always seeks to isolate us. Yes, even Christians. Or should I say, especially Christians. He wants to get us alone because he knows when we're alone, we're going to be weaker and more vulnerable. Alone is where he can deceive us. He can can trick us without anyone there to correct and challenge the lies of Satan. Think about how many sins we would really call private sins take place in our lives. Pornography. Adultery. Embezzlement. In other words, secretly stealing things. Gossip. We call it talking behind someone's back. Most drug and alcohol addictions stay hidden, or at least the person tries to. We call them closet drinkers. Our pursuit of sin always drives us to dark, lonely places. We want to be alone with our sin. We want to seek to hide our sin so that others won't know about it. And therefore, the more we embrace sin, the more we isolate ourselves. And the more we isolate ourselves, the weaker and the more vulnerable we become. Do you see the pattern? Do you see yourself pulling away in your life from the people around you that care about you? Especially the people who will challenge your sinful choices. 
Guys, it is human nature to want to get away from people who provide any kind of expectations to our lives, any kind of accountability to our lives. We tend to push them away. And let me say just a word to the introverts out there who listen to me. Because I'm an introvert. I promise you, I love to be alone. I, I, sometimes I just need to get away from people. Because I work in a job that I am always interacting with people. And that's why I have no problem going out all by myself and walking 18 holes of golf. I don't need to see another person for three or three hours. But I am also aware of the importance of maintaining healthy friendships. I know the value of having other believers a vital part of my life. And if you're using your shyness or your personality to excuse you from making friends and and engulfing yourself around other people, you're making a mistake. One that's going to cost you. You have to fight that tendency to pull away from others because you're setting yourself up for trouble if you allow your life to become isolated. Now, we all need some alone time. Matter of fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, often he got alone to pray. But we also need to recognize that we desperately need other people. We need Christian brothers and sisters if we're going to remain strong in the faith. Now, second, look at what Satan does. He pushes this man to rebel against all the authorities in his life. Look at what Mark tells us here. And you've got you to see what's going on. And no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, neither could anyone tame him. Believe it or not, and this may shock some of you, every person needs some shackles in their lives. Every person needs some taming to take place in their lives at different points. All of these, or both of these, are an example of authority in our life. Because isn't that what authority does? Authority, in a sense, shackles us. Authority, in a sense, tames us. If you don't believe me that I'm telling you the truth, I want you to go, not right now, but at some point, look in the three- and four-year-old classroom over there just stand and watch the window for a little while and you're going to quickly see that there is a classroom of students who need some training and they need some shackles at least if anything's going to be accomplished they need a teacher and they need some boundaries so some rules in their lives guess what the same thing is true for every person sitting in this room today we, we all need some authority figures in our lives We need some people to whom we are accountable. People who come along beside us and they put some expectations on our lives. We all need some rules. We need some healthy boundaries in our lives. You know what boundaries are? Boundaries are defined limits on my life on what I will do and what I won't do. A life without defined limitations is one that will quickly find itself in a ditch. Any driver who travels regularly without speed limits is soon going to crash. And usually they're going to harm themselves and other people around them. Listen, healthy boundaries make for healthy people. This is something we need to talk about over, or or something that we do talk about over and over again on Tuesday nights in Free Indeed. 
Free indeed is a place where we realize that mentally and physically and spiritually healthy people live lives with a defined set of boundaries. They live life with limits. They keep themselves under the authority of God's word, under the authority of those in their lives that God has placed over them. A wise person looks at the scriptures and allows the Bible to set limits on their behavior. They also recognize the importance of of having people in their lives to whom they are accountable. People they have willingly said, I'm going to listen to you. This usually includes what I call the big four. You know what the big four are? Pastors, principals, parents, and police. The four P's. The big four are our spiritual leaders, our superiors at work or school, our family members or mentors, and our government officials. Some of you may have more than four, but all of us need those four in our lives. Hey, let me ask you a question. Can you quickly, just mentally, identify three or four people in your life that regularly speak into your life? Are they there? Three or four people who would call you out and correct you if you started making questionable decisions and doing questionable behaviors. Now, I want you to notice how Satan influenced this man. He has been rejecting all the authorities in his life. He doesn't want anybody controlling or influencing his life at all. He is determined to do exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Here's an interesting observation for you. While this man had rejected the authorities and influences God had placed over him, was he really free? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he was totally bound by the influences of the demons in his life. This man found himself in a place that every addict eventually finds himself. Living life thinking he's totally in control, yet in reality having no control in his life whatsoever. Ever been there? You become totally bound and shackled by a lifestyle that you you chose, that you thought, this is going to make me free. I can do whatever I want to do. And the devil is perfectly happy to let you think that you're in charge. That you're making the choices. You're doing what you want to do. Right up until the time you try to stop. Or you attempt to make a different choice. And then you realize you can't stop. That you've lost all control. See, a person is only truly free when they're free to say yes or no to the habits and the pleasures in their lives. Real freedom comes when I recognize and place myself under the authorities that God has placed in my life. Because that's when I do have the the right and the ability to say yes or to say no. This is a great paradox of life. We are only truly free when we've chosen to serve the right master, Jesus. This man is going to soon discover this truth. But let's notice the third thing, that Satan pushes this man towards self-destructive actions. Look at verse 5. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. One of the surest signs in a person's life that they're going down the wrong path is when I begin to harm myself in some way. 
Notice what this man is doing. He's cutting himself. He's inflicting pain on himself. He's actually destroying his own body. Now, why would a person do that? You know, oftentimes we see that go on around us. We know people who've done that. And we look at them and we say, why would you do that? Maybe for this man it was because of the hopelessness in his life. Maybe the lack of hope drove him to self-punishment and isolation. In his mind, he couldn't see himself getting better. And so why not die a slow death of pain and suffering that he inflicts upon himself? Possibly his self-mutilation is what he just simply felt he deserved. Maybe he was so disappointed in himself, in the man that he had become, that he felt the pain and misery was all he deserved. Bringing harm to his body was his way of, of torturing the culprit that was deep inside of him, the man that he had become. Can I promise you one thing today? If you choose to follow the path of disobedience to God, you're going to wake up one day hopeless and hating the choices that you've made. I promise you that. You'll get what you thought you wanted, only to find at the end of that path is a lot of pain and a lot of regret. Guilt is a strange but strong motivator. All this man can do, he's gotten to a place in his life where all he can do is hurt himself because he feels like he deserves that pain. Have you ever felt that way? Are you feeling that way this morning? So disappointed in who you become that you believe pain is all you deserve? Have you come to a place of hating yourself? Or are you starting to punish yourself for the choices that you've made? Guys, you're about to find out that it is never too late to change the course of your life. And I hope that you'll grab that hope this morning. But before we get there, lastly, let's see where Satan is driving this man and how he's driving him away from Jesus, the Savior. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Certainly this man's thoughts and words are being influenced by the demons that possessed him. But these are his words. These are his conclusions that he has drawn. He saw Jesus as the enemy. He was certain that Jesus had come there to torment him. Isn't that odd? Hey, it's easier to get to that place than you realize. Satan can so deceive a person that they believe that Jesus is only there to condemn them and to torment them, never seeing that he is actually there to be their Savior. Luke 19.10 is one of my favorite verses where Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. In other words, He's not the enemy. He's the Savior. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we all know verse 16 of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But do you know what verse 17 says? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him 
might be saved. Listen, Jesus is not condemning you this morning. (laughs) You're doing a great job of that all by yourself, aren't you? That's why we seek pain instead of a Savior. But Jesus came to do one thing. He came to save sinners. And so if you're a sinner this morning, you qualify. Stop thinking that Jesus is the enemy. Stop thinking that He's only going to make your life miserable. He came to rescue you. Can you see that? Now look. Like this man's life, Satan will do everything he can to keep you from embracing that truth. It it amazes me that Satan can turn a loving Savior into a hated enemy, but he does it every day in people's lives. So there we see the fruit that Satan and his hordes seek to grow in our lives. Isolation. Rebellion against authority, self-destruction, and the rejection of Jesus. But what can happen to the same person when they surrender to Jesus? Look at verse 8. For he, Jesus, said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. And so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirit went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Now face to face with Jesus, these demons were no match. They were no match for the Son of God, and their only request was that they be sent into a herd of swine. It it appears that demons don't want to be without some sort of body, even if that body is just a muddy pig. And yet... The moment they inhabit the herd, the pigs immediately opt for self-destruction. They commit suicide. (laughs) Just in case you were missing Pastor Sandy this morning, I thought I'd throw that in. Worked all week on that one. Knew you'd be missing him. See, now that their bacon supply is drowning, the people in... Y'all got that a lot quicker than I thought you would. (laughs) The people in the nearby cities, they come to see what's happened. And unfortunately, we're going to find with this group of people that they are more angry about their pigs than they are excited about the salvation and freedom that had come to this demon-possessed man. Look at verse 15. Then they came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed And had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon possessed. And about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat. 
He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at what Satan does and how he wants to influence people. Let's contrast that very briefly here with what Jesus does for a person. And notice the three things that he tells us about this man after his encounter with Jesus. First, we find him sitting. Suddenly, there's a calmness and a peace in this guy's life. But he's not sitting alone. He is with Jesus and his disciples. We saw it in verse 18. What is he doing? He's begging to go with them. He doesn't want to leave them. In other words, he's ready to join the church. He's ready to get discipled. He wants something to happen in his life. His days of isolation are open. Over Jesus tells him in verse 19, he says, go home to your friends. Boy, you know what we see here? We see that Jesus is all about restoring relationships that sin has broken. Isn't that true? He even tells this man how to start rebuilding those lost friendships. He tells him, he says, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Listen, the starting place for healing and repairing broken relationships is to tell that person what God has done for you. But that's not enough. Then you've got to live out the compassion that God has shown to you by the way you show love and compassion to those you've hurt. Think about it. Can you imagine the skepticism and the fear that would have greeted this man when he showed back up at home? Oh no, he's back. Our worst nightmare has come back into our lives. What Jesus is asking this guy to do would not be easy. But in time, it could be done. He would have to be patient with the people he's hurt. Let me say that again. He's going to have to be really patient with the people he's hurt. Yes, God had forgiven him. Yes, God had changed his life. But it takes a long time for the people that you've damaged to believe that anything in your life has really changed. And that's the hard part, isn't it? That's what makes it so difficult. You're going to have to live out that change For a long time before the people that you've hurt are going to begin to trust you again. Are you prepared for that? But it can happen. Restoration is the goal of Jesus. Now notice the second thing. We find him clothed. Not only has peace returned to this man's life, but also boundaries have returned. Suddenly this man sees the importance of right and wrong. He he, he suddenly understands why he needs to put his clothes on. Why there are certain things that are acceptable in life and certain things that are unacceptable. He realizes that running around with total disregard for other people is not the way to live life. Modesty was the first thing that returned to his life. 
He's looking at life now. How? He's concerned about the people around him. Suddenly, he cares about other people. In other words, you know, think about it. Think about it. How do people in the world dress? Well, they dress to express themselves. And trust me, there are some weird expressions. <laughs> and they dress to impress others, or at least to get other people to look at them. But how should a Christian dress? He should dress to represent Christ. Every day when I wake up and choose what to put on, I need to think, is this going to glorify God in what I wear? This is true not only with the clothing that I wear, but it, it, it also needs to be true with the attitudes that I put on in the morning and the behaviors that I decide to wear that day. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Jesus brought the concern for other people back to this selfish man's life. And that's what he wants to do in your life as well. But third, notice we find him where? In his right mind. In other words, he was left-handed because he's... No, no, no. It's not what he's saying. God had restored to this man self-control over his life. See, at some point, this man had given control of his life over to someone else, over to something else. And now, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give that back to you. The New Testament teaches us that self-control, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, it's one of the things that God's Spirit wants to blossom in our lives, is self-control. And as the Spirit of God works in my life, He returns to me the ability to control my words and my actions, and my decisions. It's interesting, the Greek word here for right mind, it's used other places in the New Testament, but it's often translated sober, or sober-minded. In other words, to be in your right mind is to stop being drunk, at least in the way you think. It's to stop being under the influence of something else, even some self-destructive habit or some self-destructive way of thinking. To be sober-minded implies that I can think clearly. That I can consider the outcome of my choices before I make them. Isn't that what we struggle with a lot of times? We just act impulsively. And guys, listen. Satan loves nothing more than when you just act impulsively. No, I'm just going to do what I want to do. No thought. Who cares? Great. You don't care until the consequences of that choice start flowing up in your life and then you realize, oh my goodness, what have I done? And the whole time, the enemy's laughing and saying, yeah, what have you done? But God's Spirit allows us to think clearly about our decisions. He enables us to slow down and consider the consequences of our choices. Not just on us, but the consequences of those choices on those around us. This story is so powerful in that it reveals to us the fruit of a life lived in sin. And then it contrasts that life with a life that God desires to give to us. Here's a man's life that's totally out of control. And yet, suddenly when Jesus takes control of his life, what? He's calm. He's at peace. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. And look at verse 20. 
And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. And boy, I bet they did. I bet they marveled. See, there's nothing more powerful proving the existence of an almighty God than a changed life. Than a life that is trapped, that is now set free. There is nothing more powerful than that. See, people can argue theology with, all, with me all day long. But they cannot argue with me about what God has done in my life. And guys, they can't argue with you about what God has done in your life. Your testimony, your personal testimony is a powerful tool in showing others the power of God. Because if He can change you and if He can change me, He can change anybody. Maybe it's time you begin to proclaim that change in your hometown. But for some of you, that work hasn't yet begun. Oh, you've been exploring the things of God. You may have been attending Calvary Chapel for some time. You may have even been hoping that God would begin to do this kind of work in your life. The only problem is, the only problem has been your unwillingness to really believe that you need a Savior. Oh, you readily admit you need some help. But are you ready to admit that you need a Savior? And there's a difference. See, you and I can meet down here in the altar after church and you can tell me your problems and I can give you some help. I can say, well, maybe you need to change doing this or stop doing that or maybe you need to think differently. I can give you some help. And I can help you sort of patch up the mess that you made out of your life. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He doesn't just offer to our lives some help. No, he says, I know what you need. You don't need help. You need a savior. You need something that's going to change you on the inside and fix you there. And that change on the inside is going to flow out of your life and it's going to change you on the outside. Are you there yet? Are you ready to admit that you need a Savior? Guys, if that's you, our prayer is that you'll find Him today. That you'll let the Savior help you by fixing you, by saving you, by changing your life. Come to Him today.